Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in our last class, as our brother Renee has reminded us, we saw how the Lord Jesus Christ, having obtained his first disciples, took them to a wedding. And we saw how that would project their minds into the future. The future time when the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorified bride would be united together as one. We find that in John's record now, John takes us straight from that event, almost straight from that event as it were, of the wedding at Cana, into a set of circumstances that introduced his disciples to his father's house. And the Lord was now to teach them many profound lessons concerning Yahweh's house. However, before he went up to the temple, we read in verse 12, that after this he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples and they continued there not many days. Now Capernaum, the exact site of Capernaum is not known. In the uh, 11th chapter of the book of Matthew we read of Capernaum Matthew 11 and verse 23 the Lord Jesus Christ said to Capernaum on that occasion and thou Capernaum which art exalted unto heaven shall be brought down to hell for if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. And so there the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven. It seems that Capernaum was a thriving city in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the centre of a Roman garrison. It was the centre of a tax collector. Uh, we find that, that, that uh, um, high officials of the king dwelt in Capernaum. And Capernaum was a city that was exalted unto heaven. A thriving city, lifted up in pride. But the Lord Jesus Christ said that it would be cast down to hell. And today, archaeologists are uncertain of the exact site of Capernaum. But we know that it was up in the northern regions of the Sea of Galilee, on the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Cana was an elevated region. Capernaum was down upon the sea coast. So when John says he went down to Capernaum, the Lord Jesus Christ would literally have gone down to Capernaum. We find that although their stay at this time was very brief, verse 12 states that they continued there not many days, we find that the city of Capernaum was to figure very prominently in the life of the Lord over the next uh, two or three years of his ministry. For instance, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13, we find that the Lord, after returning from his trip to Jerusalem, on which he was shortly to embark, we find that when he comes back and he is rejected by the people of Nazareth, we read in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13, 
And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so he dwelt there. Matthew 9 and verse 1 refers to Capernaum as his own city. Matthew 17 records the way in which he was called upon in Capernaum to pay tribute there, indicating that he was identified with that city. That um, 13th verse of Matthew chapter 11 speaks of the mighty works which were done at Capernaum. And as we go through the Gospel records, we find that many of these mighty works are referred to. Mark chapter 1, for instance, tells us of how he, he cast an unclean spirit out of a man in the synagogue at Capernaum. We read in verse 31 of that same chapter of him healing Peter's wife's mother at Capernaum. In Matthew 8 and verse 5, we, we, we read of the way in which he healed the centurion's servant. That was in the city of Capernaum. Matthew 9, verses 1 and 2, speak of the healing of a paralytic in the city of Capernaum. And so many mighty works were done in Capernaum. And Capernaum was to be blessed with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, possibly more than any other city in the land of Israel over the uh, next few years of his ministry. The name Capernaum means the city of consolation. And indeed the uh, the things that Capernaum witnessed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ would indeed give it that name of the city of consolation. Now we learn here from John 2 and verse 12 that as he went down to Capernaum, his mother, his brethren and his disciples went with him. And so here with the Lord at this time, his mother and his brethren are closely identified and they accompany him on this visit down to Capernaum. And we read that also his disciples went with him as well. Now at some stage after they left John the Baptist down at Bethabara, Andrew, Peter and John left the Lord and returned to their fishing business at Bethsaida. And so that only leaves Philip and Nathaniel of those who are named who now accompany the Lord on his journeys uh, over the next uh, two or three months. And so the little company moves down to the city of Capernaum, that city that is going to figure so prominently in the life and ministry of the Lord over the next three years. But they they continue there not many days. We're not told exactly how long they stay, but their stay was only brief. And probably, after a brief stay at Capernaum, they possibly returned to Nazareth. We don't know. We're not told. But verse 13 goes straight on and says, and the Jews' Passover was at hand. Now the Lord Jesus Christ was baptised around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. He was six weeks in the wilderness where he uh, was tempted of the devil. He then returned to Bethabara. He moved up to Cana. They attend the, the, the wedding feast at Cana. They go down to Capernaum. They stay there not many days. And then the next event we read is that the Jews' Passover was at hand. 
So between his baptism and this Passover, some six months elapsed. So it's possible that uh, after a brief stay at Capernaum, he returned to Nazareth and then moved up to Jerusalem. So verse 13 tells us that the Jews' Passover was a thing. Now, it is characteristic of John that wherever he refers to the feasts of Israel, he always refers to them as the Jews' feasts. He says it was the Jews' Passover that was at hand. You see, John wrote his Gospel many years after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, probably just before his own death. And it is believed that he wrote this Gospel in Ephesus. And he wrote it for uh, the believers uh, uh, at that particular place. And so you see, uh, John is here emphasising that this feast was a feast of the Jews, distinguishing it from the many pagan religious feasts with which the people with whom he was associating would be be familiar at that time. And so he was emphasising that it was the Jews' Passover that was at hand. And Jesus, he tells us, went up to Jerusalem. This is the third recorded visit of the Lord to Jerusalem. The other visits recorded are at six weeks old, when Mary took him up there to present him under Yahweh. His second visit was at 12 years old, when he uh, um, uh, was there and confounded the doctors of the law. And this is the third recorded visit. It doesn't mean that he didn't go there at other times, but they are the only ones that are recorded. And this one took place some six months after his baptism. And the Lord, at this time of the Feast of Passover, moved up to Jerusalem as people from all over the land, and from outside the land for that matter, were flocking up to the city of Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Passover. And so on this particular occasion as the Lord went up there, we believe that the thoughts that filled his mind were somewhat different to what they had been on other occasions. The Lord was going up there this time with different objectives to what he had gone up there before. You see, John the Baptist, who was still alive and still actively preaching at this particular time, John the Baptist had called upon the people to come out into the wilderness and to change their ways. He called them out from that nation to change their ways. He he pointed out to them that they were living like a, a nation of Gentiles and he called upon them to change their ways. John the Baptist had courageously confronted the religious leaders of that nation when they went out to him. And he called them a generation of vipers. In other words, he'd identified them as the seed of the serpent. And John the Baptist had revealed that at the very heart of that nation, active sin was being manifested rather than true worship. And the very, at the very hub of that nation was service to self rather than sacrificial love of Yahweh 
and his truth. You know, under the law of Moses, which was still in force at that time, the procedure was laid down through, by means of which that situation could be dealt with. And we find that, that uh, procedure laid down in the 14th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And in the 14th chapter of the book of Leviticus, we have set before us the law relating to a house in which the plague of leprosy was found. Now on the sheet of notes that was given we very briefly set out the procedure but in verses 33 to um, 53 of this chapter we find the procedure is laid down. Verse 34 for instance, we won't read the lot but we look at verse 34. When ye be come into the land of Canaan which I give to you for a possession and I put a plague of leprosy in a house of the land of your possession. And he that owneth the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, It seemeth to me that there is a plague in the house. And the priest shall command that they empty the house. And then the priest would go in to see the plague. And he would look, and if there be evidence of a plague there, he was to shut the house up for seven days, then he was to come and look at that house again to determine whether that plague really was leprosy or not. And he would examine that house then and he would, he would uh, instruct that all infected stones be removed from that house. They'd be pulled out of the walls and removed out of that house. They were to be replaced with new stones. The walls were to be covered with plaster and then he would shut the house up again and he would leave it for an unspecified period of time here and then he would come back later and inspect that house again to see if that house was clean or whether the leprosy had broken out again. If the leprosy had broken out again the house was to be broken down and all the stones and everything removed to an unclean place. If the house was pronounced clean, then sacrifices were to be offered and that house was cleansed of that plague. And so we see that when a person came into possession of a house and he became aware that there was some sort of plague in the house, it was the owner's responsibility to report it to the priest the priest would remove everything out of that house so that the things within that house should not be defiled. Then he would inspect the house and remove the infected stones. Then he would inspect the house again and pronounce the house either clean or unclean. You know, these things had relation to Israel. Israel was Yahweh's house. Now I believe the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 2 was trying to impress that lesson upon the people. You know, where he referred to the temple, he called it Yahweh, his father's house. In John chapter 2 and at verse um, and at verse 16 he says, take these things hence. 
Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And the word that he uses there is the word oikos, which according to Bullinger and according to the way it's used in the New Testament, can apply either to a house as a literal building or to a family. The words used that way in the New New Testament apply to both those ways. You see, the Lord was using that very way of referring to that house because I believe he was trying to impress upon the people that they were Yahweh's house, they were his family. You see, and so we believe that this law of the leprous house had an application to the house of Israel. He said, in the days of the Lord, as Yahweh's house was looked upon, active sin, a plague, was found to be in that house. You know, John the Baptist came along, he revealed the state of that nation and he called people to come out and to separate out of it, lest they be defiled by the plague that was in that house. He endeavoured to empty that house. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes along and upon two occasions inspects that house. The Lord inspected it twice. The first um, cleansing or inspection is recorded in John chapter 2. And on that occasion he endeavoured to remove the infected stones and to, by casting out the spiritual Canaanites out of that house, and he called upon the people to reform their ways. But you know, at the second cleansing or inspection, which is recorded in Matthew 21, Luke 19 and Mark 11, we find he inspected that house on a second time and as we compare these two inspections, we find his manner of uh, speaking on those occasions does differ. And instead of calling for a reform on the second time, he pronounced the doom of that house. So you see, there were the two inspections. John the Baptist endeavoured to call out of that nation people that they might not be defiled by the leprosy, the plague of leprosy that was, was uh, gripping that nation. The Lord Jesus Christ came along and tried to remove the infected stones. The house was shut up and inspected again. But because the plague had broken out again, then that house was to be destroyed as it was in AD 70. You know, these principles and the law of the leprous house has an application for us personally too. You know, when the truth first finds us, or if we grow up in the truth, when we come to the position of having a responsible knowledge and understanding the things that the truth teaches us, it reveals to us that we're smitten with a plague. We find that we're spiritual lepers. We're sinners in bondage to sin and death. You know, we have to come to God's appointed priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to confess the condition. We have to confess that there's a plague within us. You know, and as the owner confessed to the priest and then the priest would, uh, would, would remove out of the house everything that might be defiled, 
And then he would go to inspect that house. Now you can picture the scene of the owner of the house and the priest going through that house together, the owner pointing out the places in that house where he'd seen the evidence of this plague and the priest examining it and then endeavouring to remove all the infected parts out of that house. You know, as the truth comes to work in us and reveal the plague of leprosy or sin within us, we have to come and confess that condition to our great high priest and taking the example of our priest. We have together with that priest, as it were, we have to scrutinise our lives. We have to endeavour to cast out the infected parts. We have to put the old man to death. But you see, as those stones were cast out of that house, they had to be replaced with new stones. It's not much use us just putting the old man to death. We have to replace the old way of life, the old habits. We have to replace those things with new ones. Things of positive activities in the truth's service. You see, how do we put the old man to death? The only way we put the old man to death is by getting our priorities right. So that when the old man of the flesh says, well, I'd like to go out and have a good time for a Saturday afternoon. But the new man of the Spirit says, I want to get away in a quiet place. And I want to absorb some of Yahweh's word that the new man might grow and be brought to maturity. What are we going to do? You see, we have to put the old man to death. We say, no, you can't have a good time today because the new man is in need of, of, of feeding, is in need of development to be brought to maturity. And so you see the old profitless things of life have to be cast out, just as the stones of the leprous house have to be removed from the walls and cast out, and new stones put in. And so you see that the, the, the things of the old man have to be replaced by positive activities in the truth service. And so you see, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to submit to the waters of baptism, to put the old man to death, you see, that's what we're agreeing to do, to cast off the things of the old man and replace them with things of active, profitable service in, in, in our Lord's uh, Lord's service. You see, not only did the stones have to be removed and replaced by new stones, but the walls had to be plastered. They had to be covered. You know, and the Lord Jesus Christ provides us with a covering for our sins. You see, if we genuinely come to him and identify with his death and put the old man to death, cast out the old profitless things of our lives, if we pledge to spend our time profitably in his service, then he provides us with a covering of our sins, just as the walls of that house were plastered. But you know, that having been done in that house, the house was then left for a period of time. Likewise, having been brought into this uh, very blessed relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we are left for a period of probation to see if the active manifestation of sin has really been put aside. But you see, then inevitably must come the second inspection. When the priest will come again and inspect that house and on that second inspection, one of two things could happen. It had to be one or the other. The priest would look at that house and he would pronounce it clean or else he would look at that house. And if the plague of leprosy could be seen again, if active sin is found in the person's life again, then that house had to be broken down and cast out into an unclean place. And you see, that inspection is a a type of the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. When every one of us must stand before him and our lives must be scrutinised to see if really we have cast off the profitless things of the flesh and manifested the divine character in their place. And so you see, not only did the law of that leprous house have its application to the house of Israel, but it has its application to us also. For we are the temple of the living God. And Peter in his first epistle in chapter 2 points out that we are living stones in that temple. And the day is soon coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will examine us to see if we are stones fit to be, put, to be built into his living temple or whether we are stones with a plague of leprosy that must be cast out into an unclean place and rejected. And so then with those thoughts in mind concerning the law of the leprous house, let's then take a look now at the Christ's first cleansing of the temple. In John chapter 2, we read in verse 13 how he went up to Jerusalem. In verse 14 we read that when he was in Jerusalem, he went to the temple. He says, and he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Now where we read there that he found in the temple, The temple there is a word herion, some such word. It really applies to the whole of the temple area. It applies more partic- particularly to the outer court of the temple. It's used to refer to the whole of the sacred enclosure. We find that Herod's temple was a uh, uh, quite a magnificent building. It is stated that the, the area of the the whole of the outer court totaled some 14 acres. So it was a, a building of some considerable size. 
All around the uh, edge of the court here, we find, as these uh, dots indicate, it was set out with colonnades and pillars and it was all enclosed in. So there was an ample area around there, uh, sheltered and protected from the weather, in which the uh, money changers and so on could, could uh, very conveniently and comfortably take up their positions. Um, this was known as the court of the Gentiles. Here is the court of the women. Uh, this is the court of the priests, in which the altar was. And here we go through the porch, into the holy place, and the most holy place. Now, a Gentile coming up to worship, he could only come into this court. He couldn't go beyond these walls at all. So his worship was confined to that court. And now, so when we read in... Um, in verse 14, that Christ came into the temple and found there, he had entered in through one of the various gates and he had come into the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. And as he came into that court, we're told he found those that sold oxen, sheep and doves and the changers of the money sitting. Now this was a situation that the priesthood in Jerusalem had allowed to develop. They'd allowed it to develop because it was very easy and convenient for the people and also profitable for the sellers and the priesthood alike. You see, it was so much more convenient for the people to be able to go right into the temple area and there obtain their animals for sacrifice. So much more convenient than having to obtain the animal somewhere else and then get it up to the temple have there and there at the temple have it inspected by the priest with the possibility that the priest might find a blemish and reject it uh, and, and then there's all the inconvenience of getting the animal away and getting another one. It was so much more convenient for them to be go right into the temple itself and there purchase an animal that had already been inspected and passed by the priests. It was a very, very convenient procedure. You see, but what was it doing to the people? You see, one of the lessons that Yahweh wanted to teach his people through that sacrificial law, there was the, the personal association with the animal was designed to teach the person lessons. The preparation of the animal, the very process of having to get it to the temple, was all rich with lessons and exhortation for the people. There were the emotional ties that were developed between the person and the animal. And as the person took there an animal with which he'd been closely identified and associated, uh, and as he had to take that animal uh, to, to be killed there by the altar, the whole process would create in that person a very sober, deep, meditative spirit. And that's what Yahweh was trying to cultivating in those that drew nigh under him. But you see, this process, although very easy and convenient, destroyed all those lessons. You see, a few shouts and the change of a few coins and there was the sacrifice. The animal meant nothing to the person. There was no preparation, no means of, of having to get that animal there, no emotional ties with that animal. It was all gone and, and, and that sober, 
deep meditative spirit that Yahweh wanted in his worshippers was replaced by the excitement of a market atmosphere. You see, that's one aspect of that which was happening at the time. And there all around the edge of that court would be sitting behind their tables the money changers. Again, very convenient for the people, very easy. You see, every year, every Jew was supposed to pay to the temple treasury an annual tax of a half a shekel. And no foreign coin would be accepted in that temple. No coin bearing the emblem of submission to an alien king was allowed to pollute that temple. So you see, all the current money at the time uh, couldn't be used to pay that tax because even the money to the land of Israel bore Caesar's inscription. So they couldn't use that money in the temple. So they had to obtain a, a, an appropriate silver coin that they might go and pay their tax. And it was so convenient to be able to go into the temple and just change the money and go and, uh, and put it into the temple treasury. You see, but what was the purpose of that silver coin tax that Yahweh introduced in the first place back in Exodus chapter 30? You see, it was a little token that every Israelite had to pay in acknowledgement of the redemption that Yahweh had graciously given him. That's what that silver coin represented. You know, all around this court, sitting behind their tables were men who were making profit out of the redemption that Yahweh had offered his people. Because you see, when they changed the coin, they made uh, quite a, uh, a worthwhile profit out of changing that money. And there were people making profit out of the redemption that Yahweh had freely and graciously given unto his people. And those were the circumstances that the Lord Jesus Christ found as he went into his father's house. You know, it's possibly difficult for us to really imagine the full extent of the atmosphere that was created in that court of the temple. You know, Josephus records that at one Passover festival, a Passover festival of course lasted a, a, a week but Josephus records that at one Passover festival in the course of that week 256,000 animals passed through that temple court 256,000 animals passed through that court now in the uh, uh, process of 7 or 8 days that would be 30,000 animals a day you know Edeshine likewise uh, writes concerning one person who took 3,000 sheep into the temple court all at one time in one flock. That gives us some idea of the, of the traffic that was passing through that outer court together with all the noise and activity it would bring. That was the atmosphere of, the, of that outer court of Yahweh's house. Put yourself in the position of a Gentile. He wanted to go up to the temple to worship Yahweh. He might travel a very long distance. And he wants to get there 
as close as he can get to, uh, to the temple of Yahweh, that he might exercise his mind upon the glorious lessons that are associated with that place. And he gets there. And he can't go beyond that outer court. He gets there to give his mind to, 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 to meditation on the things of Yahweh and to praise and worship his God. And what does he do? He finds himself in the midst of a cattle market. That's what the people were doing to Yahweh's house. You see, and as the Lord Jesus Christ went into that temple at the feast of Passover when things were at their busiest, and as he viewed these things, as he meditated and contemplated the things that were going on, how his mind must have gone back to such passages as Zechariah, as our brother Brian showed us over our recent camp. In Zechariah chapter 5, where in the fifth chapter of Zechariah, the great apostasy that was to, to develop out of Israel was typified there. In verse 6 of chapter 5 we read, and I said, what is it? Referring to this particular vision. And he says, this is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance or their eye through all the earth. As our brother Brian pointed out, the ephah was a symbol of Israel's commercialism. And there it was manifested in his father's house as the Lord Jesus Christ went there on this occasion. And he could see there at the very heart of the religious life of that nation it was commercialism that was uppermost. And it was commercialism that was destroying the spiritual mind of Yahweh's people. You see, and again his mind would have gone back to Zechariah 14. As you look forward to that glorious day where it says that the Canaanite would no more be in the, in the, uh, in the house of Yahweh. The word for Canaanite means a, a trafficker or a merchant, a trader. And you see here in, in, in the very temple at that time he found that court filled with spiritual Canaanites. People were making profit out of the redemption that Yahweh had, had, had graciously given unto his people. People were making profit out of the sacrifices and the sacrificial law that, that, that Yahweh had instituted to teach the people spiritual lessons. And by personal convenience and the love of money and profit, all those spiritual lessons were being destroyed and Yahweh was being robbed of that which he sought to find in his people. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ viewed this thing, we find that quietly he finds some pieces of rope. Verse 15 says, When he had made a scourge of small cords, scourge of course is a whip, he found some small cords, literally the word means pieces of rushes. But in Acts chapter 27 I think it is where we read of Paul's shipwreck, uh, the word is used to describe the ropes that they cut to let the boats fall off. And so he found some pieces of rope and out of those pieces of rope he made a whip and then filled with indignation he proceeded to herd the animals and the sellers alike out of the temple 
tipping over the, the, the tables of the money changers, sending the money scattered across the floor. And for a, a, a period of time we can imagine the chaos and the confusion of stampeding animals, uh, of, of people um, hurrying and bustling, getting out of that temple as quick as they can as the animals are chased and herded out of those gates. And the, those who sold doves, the sacrifice of the poor, those who were trying to make money out of the poor were commanded to remove their things out of the, out of the very precincts of that temple. You know, as we try to picture that scene, the, the, the enormous numbers of animals that were probably in there, being driven and herded out of those gates, uh, the, the, the number of people, the money changers, the money spread over the floor being trampled underfoot. We see that the disciples, as they viewed that scene, we're told in verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. A quote from the 69th Psalm and at verse 9. Now in Psalm 69 we have a psalm that is quoted quite a few times in the New Testament. It's a psalm that is quoted uh, applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ and applying the latter half of the, uh, the psalm, latter part of the psalm, to the uh, state that Israel had fallen into after the, uh, 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 the um, rejection of Christ and the destruction of their temple and so forth. But now as we look at this psalm, we see that the very setting of this psalm is the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hangs upon the cross. Now we, um, in verse... Um, 21 of the psalm we read they gave me also gall for my meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink and that verse is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John showing that it had its fulfilment as the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross and so it's a psalm that is applicable to the sufferings and death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross and up to verse uh, um, 21 there, we find that, the, uh, that the, the whole of the psalm is applicable to the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ as he suffered upon the cross. It shows us the tremendous trust that he had in his Father. You see the very opening plea of the psalm in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. And so we, we, we read of the, the, the tremendous trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we read of the tremendous trust that he had in his God as we go through this psalm. But we also read of the bitter hatred that was to be levelled against him by his own countrymen. You see, we come to verse 4 of the psalm. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. And so you see, here's a man, a suffering servant, hated by multitudes more than the hairs of his head, surrounded by people that, 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 that 
want to destroy him, wrongfully so. For no, no reason at all, they had no cause to hate him. They were wrong in trying to destroy him, but he was surrounded by his enemies in this world. You know, we go down to verse 8 of the psalm. I am become a stranger under my brethren and an alien under my mother's children. You see, verse 20 of the psalm says, Reproach hath broken mine heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Here's a man forsaken by all. Then in verse 21 we have the those words which show that it is applicable to the Lord Jesus Christ as he hangs upon the cross. But why? Why is this man in this condition? Why is he hated without a cause? Why are people wrongfully trying to destroy him? You see, well, verse 9 tells us, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. What does he mean, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up? You know, we take a look at that word zeal. The word literally means jealousy. We find it used in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 14, where we read, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of armies, I am jealous for Jerusalem, and for Zion with great jealousy. Here's the word, the same word, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Here we find Yahweh of armies saying, I am jealous for Jerusalem, and for Zion with great jealousy. Chapter 8 and verse 2 again we find the word used. Thus saith Yahweh of armies, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. So there's the word, it means jealousy. We find it again in Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25 we actually find two words used and they're very, very, almost, almost the same, one derived from the other. But here in Numbers 25 and verse 11 we find these two very closely related words used. Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned away my wrath from the children of Israel. While he was zealous, that word means jealous, that's very slightly different to the word we're looking at, and it means the same. While he was jealous for my sake, there's the word again. There's the word rendered zeal in Psalm 69 and verse 9. And the margin renders that rightly. It's not for my sake. He was jealous with my jealousy. You see, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, was, was jealous over the things of Yahweh with Yahweh's own jealousy. You see, in that spirit that we see in Phinehas there, as he saw the plague gripping the nation of Israel, and he courageously rose up, uh, and with one uh, courageous action, he stayed that plague. And it says, because he was jealous with Yahweh's jealousy, the plague was stayed. 
You know, that word zeal is also found in Ezekiel 38, verse 19, where we read in that chapter of when Go invades the land of Israel, that Yahweh's uh, fury will come up in his face. Um, let just get the exact words. Chapter 38, verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken, Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And that, you see, those quotations show us the significance of that zeal, the zeal for his father's house that was to consume him. The Lord Jesus Christ was filled with jealousy over his father's honour, his father's house, his father's people, his father's purpose. And he was jealous with his father's jealousy over those things. You know, it's interesting perhaps to just bear in mind those principles of that 69th Psalm, which speak of the bitter hatred that would be levelled against the Lord Jesus Christ because of the jealousy that he would have for his father's house. You know, we go to the end of his life the very trial, you know, the priests referred back to that very event. The very thing that he said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, they went right back to that event and tried to use it as evidence against him. We go through the Gospel records and very soon after this event of cleansing the temple we find that the priests sought to kill him. You know, in verse 12 of that chapter we see his mother and his brethren closely identified and associated with him happy to go with him down to Capernaum but it's soon after this event we find John chapter 7 and verse 5 records that neither did his brethren believe in him Matthew chapter 12 records the way in which his mother and his brethren came unto him trying to turn him from his course of action thinking of course that he was going to uh, to greater extremes and so you see it was this zeal that he manifested for his father's house on this occasion that stirred up the enmity of the priesthood that alienated from his, him from his mother's brethren and that ultimately led to his death and crucifixion just as, re- as recorded in that 69th psalm You see, by his very act of cleansing the temple and driving the spiritual Canaanites out of that place, the Lord was really publicly rebuking the priesthood for allowing that set of circumstances to develop. It was really their responsibility to look after that temple and to see uh, that only the right and acceptable things were done in that temple. And the Lord entering that temple and treating it in this way was a public rebuke for the priesthood. And they never forgot it. They never forgot it. And it stirred up their hatred against him because he had publicly rebuked them in that particular way. You know, the remarkable thing is that as we picture that scene of the Lord herding these animals out of that court, but nobody tried to stop him. Everybody fled before him. 
It wasn't until after the event was all over that the priest came along and said, well, look, show us a sign. Show us a sign that you've got authority to do these things. And that was as much as they could do about it. I believe there were two reasons for that. One reason was the righteous indignation that would be visible in his person. And secondly, their own smitten consciences. Because they knew he was right and they knew they were wrong. In actual fact, it is claimed that in in their own laws, the Torah or whatever it's called, it was actually prescribed that the, to, to, uh, to carry on business in the temple courts in that way was a sin punishable with death. But you see, that had all been overlooked because it was convenient for the people and it was profitable for the priesthood and for the sellers. But their own consciences smote them and all fled before that man as he cleansed these things out of the temple in that particular way. You know, it's interesting to compare these early events in the Lord's life with the circumstances of the temptation that took place down in the wilderness. Down in the wilderness, some few months before, two or three months before, the priesthood had gone to him and said, look, you make stones into bread so that you can be like Moses who gave the people bread from heaven to eat. The Lord refused to do that. But he went up to Cana and he turned water into wine. You see, now he comes down, the the next priests come to him and they say, look, you go up and cast yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple that you might demonstrate to the people that you're the son of God, that they might rally behind you. The Lord didn't do that. But now he goes to that temple and now he manifests himself in that temple And he makes claims about himself in that temple which should clearly identify him as the Messiah of Israel. You know, that prophet Malachi had said in the third chapter of his prophecy, in verse 1, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom ye seek He's being a bit ironical there. They weren't really seeking the Lord, not in the way that he would come anyway. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like full of soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Of course, that work hasn't been accomplished yet. That is still to be done in the future. But you see, when the Lord Jesus Christ did come, he came suddenly unto his temple and he purged that temple. He publicly rebuked the priesthood endeavouring to purge them as gold and silver is purged. But you see, they didn't recognise him. They didn't accept him. Had he made some spectacular display which would have really been honouring to them as well and rallied the people around him, they would have accepted him. But when he came and purged that temple and publicly rebuked that priesthood before the people, it was a different matter altogether. 
and the hatred and the enmity of the people was stirred up of, of the priesthood was stirred up against him. But the Lord did go to his temple and the Lord did manifest himself there and make claims there to be the Son of God. Because you see, as we go down into, uh, <coughs> as we look at verse 16, he said to them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. So here he claimed to be the son of God. He referred to it as his father's house and he told them that they had turned it into a house of merchandise, a marketplace. You know, as we look at the words here, he says, um, make not my father's house. Don't make it, or as the words literally mean, stop making it a house of merchandise. You know, when we go to the second inspection, in Mark eleven seventeen, for instance, the Lord didn't say stop making it a house of merchandise. He said, you have made it a den of thieves. Not just a marketplace, a den of thieves. See, it was in a worse condition then than it was before. The situation had degenerated now. He doesn't say stop making it a den of thieves. He says you have made it a den of thieves. And he pronounced the doom of that temple. But here you see, the Lord has cast out the spiritual Canaanites out of that house. He's tried to remove the stones in which the plague of leprosy was being manifested and he calls upon them to, to reform their ways. He gives them the opportunity now to, to, to treat the father's house in the way that it should be treated. Now he calls upon them to reform their ways. Now we find that, that uh, in answer um, to him we read in verse 18 Then answered the Jews and said unto him What sign showest thou seeing thou doest these things? You see after this they were, they were asking for a sign that could demonstrate his authority for, 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 for dealing with the temple in this particular way. In verse 19 Jesus gives them their answer. He said unto them Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That was the sign the Lord Jesus Christ gave in answer to their question. What sign do you show us seeing you do these things? They didn't understand the sign at all. They didn't know what he was talking about. The disciples didn't understand it either at that time, but we learn that they did later. You see, it's significant that here the word temple in this verse it's different to the word uh, back in verse 14. As we said before, the word in verse 14 referred to the whole of the temple area. But this word here in verse 19 is the word naos, which replying to the literal temple referred only to this region here. It's the inner temple, the dwelling place. You see, a temple is a dwelling place of Yahweh. It's a building in which Yahweh dwells. And in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple 
the glory of Yahweh had dwelt in that temple, in the Holy of Holies. In Herod's temple, the glory didn't dwell there. Yahweh wasn't dwelling in that temple as he had in previous temples. But the Lord, but he was dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> was the Nao, Yahweh's Naos, his dwelling place. And Yahweh's glory was revealed in that man. It wasn't dwelling between the cherubim anymore, it was dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moral glory of the Father was manifested in him. And so you see, he says, destroy this Naos. He wasn't referring to Herod's temple at all because the glory didn't dwell in Herod's temple but it was dwelling in him and in three days I will raise it up. You see, by their sins by their hatred for him and the sins that they manifested the Jews crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and also destroyed their own temple. Why wasn't the glory dwelling in Herod's temple? Because it had been withdrawn back in the days of Ezekiel, because of the sins of the people. You see, now here is is the nation filled with hatred for the Son of God. They crucify the Son of God, and of course their temple is left under them useless, as the uh, uh, Lord died upon the cross, the veil of the temple was rent and that temple was useless. Their house was left under them desolate. But you see, the Lord said, destroy this temple, this naos, the temple of his body. He says, and in three days I will raise it up. What does he mean when he says, I will raise it up? Well, we know that it was God who rose up that dead body. The Lord in death had no power to raise his own body. But you see, that body was raised because of the righteous life that the Lord lived. Because of the perfect offering that he had offered unto his Father. It was in that perfect offering that the power of his resurrection lies. And so you see, he, he, he could say, I will raise it up. Because he, he, because he was referring to the fact that he would make a perfect offering unto the Father, unto his Father. And of course we know that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified by the Jews. He was raised to eternal life by the power of Almighty God upon the third day. And, on the third, and then when he rose and was clothed with immortality, he was elevated to the right hand of the Father as a great high priest in a greater and a better temple than has ever stood in the city of Jerusalem. And so you see that temple in Jerusalem became useless. It was no longer of any purpose. But the Lord Jesus Christ was now a high priest in a greater temple. You know, and on the third day, in a thousand years for a day, on the third day from his from his own death and resurrection he will raise up his own household to be a temple of living stones in which Yahweh might be physically manifested in the future time and upon that third day the Lord Jesus Christ will raise up Yahweh's spiritual temple his spiritual house 
his family. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he was claiming to be their Messiah. He was claiming to be that promised seed back in Genesis 3.15 who would be bruised upon the heel but would bruise the serpent in the head. You see, he was referring back to such uh, typical um, <coughs> events as, the, uh, uh, as the, the offering of Isaac when for three days as, as Abraham and Isaac walked up to Mount Moriah Isaac was as good as dead but on the third day Abraham received him back again from the dead. <coughs> and the Lord Jesus Christ was claiming to be the antitype of all these things. He was claiming to be the Messiah and that was the authority upon which he had cleansed his father's house. You know, the Jews didn't understand what he was talking about. They said, 40 and 6 years with this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in 3 days? You know, where the Lord says in three days I will raise it up, he referred, the word he used for raise it up means literally to awake. He will awake it up. So you see, he was obviously speaking of his own death and resurrection. But they didn't understand that. But you see, they said, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? See, but he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You see, the disciples didn't understand that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to have to die right up to the very time of his death, right up to the, beyond the time of his death. They did not understand the principles of his death and resurrection. But you see, after he was raised from the dead and they thought back upon this event, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then they understood it. And once they understood that, all those Old Testament scriptures, Genesis 22, the figurative death of Isaac, raised up on the third day. Psalm 16 verse 10, there will not... Uh, Leave my soul in hell or suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Psalm 22 which speaks of the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glories of the future life. All these things then they understood them and they believed them and they understood then the significance of Yahweh's house, that house of living stones. And may it be, brethren and sisters, as we look at the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ came to his father's house in the days of his first advent. He inspected that house. He purged out of it all those things that defiled and offended. And he endeavoured to bring her out of reform. You know, we are Yahweh's house. The Lord Jesus Christ has visited us. And we've identified with him in the waters of baptism. And he's purged us and cleansed our lives of all those profitless, defiling things in which we engaged in the past. And that house is shut up at this particular time on a period of probation where we might prove ourselves whether we have truly been cleansed or not. And very soon, just as the Lord in the, in the days of his first advent 
made a second inspection of that house and because the leprosy had broken out again and was manifested worse than it was at the first, then that house was left desolate, was broken down and that nation were cast out of that land to reap the the, the tragic circumstances outlined in the 69th Psalm. May it be, brethren and sisters, that we might purge our lives and cleanse out of our lives all those things where personal convenience takes precedence over the spiritual lessons that Yahweh would teach. Those things where personal profit takes precedence over sacrificial love for the things of Yahweh. Let us purge those things out so that when we stand before the Lord the second time for our second inspection he might be able to pronounce us clean that he might be able to clothe us with divine nature, that we might be part of that glorious spiritual temple that he will raise up upon the third day.